How are you guys doing this morning? All right. Um, get this thing in here. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Edward Murray, and I just wanted to let you all know how excited I am to preach to you guys. Um, I used to go to this church. My wife and I, we now live up in Charlotte, um, but we love Redemption Church. And when I say that we love Redemption Church, I'm not just saying that we love this building, that we love the way the, the worship service is presented, the way the songs sound. We love you guys. We, we know a lot of you by, by um, name. We pray for you guys. And um, we've, we've been connected with you guys from afar and hearing everything that God's doing in the life of this church. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Judges chapter 8. Verses 22 through 35. Many of you guys might be familiar with the story of Gideon. Gideon, the man whom God used to deliver Israel with only 300 men. But a lot of you guys, what you might not be familiar with is how Gideon ended his life. You might not be familiar with how Gideon did not finish well. So if you look for me, look with me at Judges 8. Verses 22 to 35, and we'll dive in. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the pearl garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, in Oprah, and all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for forty years in the land of, in the days of Gideon. Now Jerubbabel, that's another name for Gideon, by the way, <laughs> the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son and called his name Abimelech. And, God, and Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash his father at Oprah of the Abizrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubal, that is, Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Now before you guys are thinking, this is kind of an obscure passage. Did you just open the Bible and pick and point and pick the most random passage you could out of there. Um, I'm currently in seminary, and this passage was assigned to me. So, um, And I figured when I was uh, asked to preach, well, maybe God sovereignly has this orchestrated for you guys to hear of how Gideon finished his life. So pray with me. 
Dear Father, we thank you for your word. It has gospel in it. Joyous encouragements and exciting things in it. It even has seemingly obscure passages and warnings in it to help encourage us to follow you. Please meet us in this time. Teach us what you would have us learn from your holy word. Glorify yourself through your Holy Spirit, and in Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. So in our day and in our time, let's be honest, character lessons have kind of gotten a bad rap. Character lessons are kind of deemed as legalistic. If you were to look in the Bible, find a person in Scripture, learn from their successes, learn from their mistakes, it's very easy for us to look at and say that's, that's legalism. It's, it's not gospel to do that. Character lessons are kind of viewed at as bad. Am I right? You guys are kind of feeling that. Um, but here's the thing. Character lessons are not bad. Bad character lessons are bad. So example of what a bad character lesson would be, would be to look in Scripture, find a guy, and say, be obedient like this guy, and God will accept you. Or, don't do what this guy did, and God will accept you. That's an example of a bad character lesson. You and, I, you and I would not want to preach that type of lesson. But character lessons in themselves are not bad. And the reason character lessons are not bad is, one, because they're in the, in the Scriptures. God's given us to learn from them. And the main reason is because what you do matters. What you do matters, how much you drink, whether or not you're looking at porn, whether or not you lie to your spouse, whether or not you cheat on your taxes, whether or not you're a prideful person or a selfish person, what you do matters because the choices you make affect your heart and they affect the hearts of the people around you. How you live your life matters and how you end your life matters. It's not legalism to say, guard your life. And today's passage serves as a warning and a call. A warning to guard yourself and a call to finish well. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 6, Paul gives us a picture of what the end of the Christian life is supposed to look like. Here's Paul in prison Literally, this is the last letter he's, he's written. He could have been beheaded literally the next day. We don't know. But he's at the end of his life. Is it up there? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This is the goal, to run through the finish line and finish well. Gideon did not finish well, and the way he ended his life had devastating consequences for himself, for his loved ones, and for the people of God. So we're going to look at this passage in three stages. In the first place, how Gideon did not finish well. Secondly, as a result, how Gideon's family did not finish well. And thirdly, how Israel did not finish well. So let's dive in. In the first place, at the height of Gideon's success, Gideon's poor judgment leads to grave consequences. Now, you guys might remember the context, as I referred to it earlier. Gideon, all right, Israel is oppressed by Midian. They're enslaved by this people group. And God calls Gideon, this poor field boy, to come and lead Israelite and deliver them from oppression. 
But he originally starts out with 32,000 men, and God says to him, that's too many men. If you go and deliver Israel with that many men, I'm not going to get the glory. People aren't going to realize that I'm the one who did it. So he has Gideon scale his army down to just 300 men. And with 300 men, Gideon, the Lord, through Gideon, delivers Israel from Midianite oppression. Now, how big was Midian? We don't know, but it was big enough that they could subdue a people group that had 32,000 able men willing to fight for them. That's pretty big. It's a pretty big miracle. And now on our current scene, if you look in verse 22, the people are so overwhelmed, they present an enormously honorable request. They say to him, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. So what what are they saying here? They're saying, Gideon, that was such an awesome miracle that you just did. You're such a mighty leader. You're such a great warrior. Thank you for coming and delivering us. But not only do we want to make you king... We want to give you a dynasty. We want, we want your sons to be kings after you. We want your grandsons to be kings. Instead of King David on the throne and the, the lineage of David as the king of Israel, we could have had the lineage of Gideon. But this is kind of a dark thing. This is a dark time for Israel. They had forgotten God. Yahweh was their true king. Yahweh was the one who had delivered them. But they like Gideon. And Gideon knows this is not a good thing. This is not a good thing. And he corrects them. In verses 23 through 27, we have Gideon's response. He says, I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Such an awesome response. You think. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings of your spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in a city in Oprah. In verse 27. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. It started good. Gideon had great sound theology. But what happened? I mean, what's, what's going on here? I mean, so... This is probably really confusing. You're probably thinking, okay, that doesn't really make sense. What, what is an ephod? Well, an ephod, in, Levitical, in, in the Old Testament, you had the Levitical priests. And the priests were given instructions in the book of Exodus on this, this outfit that they were to wear when they went into the tabernacle. And part of that outfit, outfit included what is called an ephod, which is like a vest, a priestly vest that they would wear when they went into the tabernacle. Okay, Edward, that, that still doesn't make sense. It still doesn't make sense. You're telling me at the height of Gideon's career, he's, he's just seen God do this miraculous miracle. They ask him to be king, and he says, The Lord's your king. Let's make a vest and worship it. I mean, think about it. This is, this is William Wallace, who has just been asked to lead the Scottish Revolution against England. This is Maximus Decimus before Caesar, Caesar has just asked him, I want you to take up the, uh, the throne and rule Rome after my death. Those are references to Braveheart and, and uh, Gladiator, if you guys don't know. I'm old. I find out that I say things 
And I make references, and then people look at me and I'm like, what is that? What's Mario Brothers? You know. Um, but you, those, those movies are awesome. You need to know those. So wait a minute. At the height of his career, he says, let's make an idol. Not only that, a, a weird idol. Let's make a vest and worship it. Now this is a message about guarding your life. And for me to guard my life. And for you and me to finish well, right? Guarding our lives and making sure that you and I don't do anything stupid that screws it up for the end of our lives, that screws it up for our families, messes up for other people, right? This is a message about guarding our life. You might say, Edward, that sounds really dumb. I'm not going to do something that dumb. I'm not going to come and tell people to start worshiping my wardrobe. I mean, this would be like, wouldn't this be the equivalent of redemption hosting a cookout that leads 40,000 people to Christ? And then the following Sunday, Jeremy comes into church and he's wearing this robe that Reggie knit him. And he says, guys, I want you to worship this, this beautiful piece of artwork. Maybe he might make some comment about his body or whatever, but that's weird. Okay. So wouldn't that be the equivalent of what's going on? Well... It's not quite. There's a little bit more going on. It's a little bit more subtle. So, it, it doesn't sound believable, but it's not as drastic as that. Now, you've got to understand the function of this priestly garment. Part of this, pre, on this priestly garment, the ephod, there were these two stones. And all, these two stones were used, we don't know how, but they were used in a way to try to communicate with God to try to see if we could figure out what was God's will for like yes or no questions. Should we go into the battle? Cast the two stones. Ah, it landed on yes, we should go into battle. Should we not go into the battle? Cast the two stones. No, we shouldn't go into the battle. That's, that's, we, we suspect that that's how it worked. But when the priest is wearing this robe, wearing these garments, what they're in essence doing is going before God in between the people and God. They're going before them, and it's, it's like a communicative way. You communicate to me, I'll communicate to God. God communicates to me, I'll communicate back to you. It's like a divine eight ball that actually works. Moreover, if you, in verse 27, it tells us that he put this ephod in his city. So Gideon's not really initially saying, I want to create an idol, and I want you guys to come and worship, worship it. What he's saying right here is I'm going to wear it. Not only am I going to wear it, I'm going to take it to my house. You guys want to come to God? You come to me. Just come to me. Oh, it's like, no, God's your king. He's the one who delivered you, right? Yeah, but I had a part in it. And you know what? God communicated to me. Tell you what, let's, let's just change this whole worship thing. You guys come to me and I'll go to God. You, and I'll come, God will come to me and we'll, we'll change that. So it was a small move, a subtle reaction of departing of the Lord. It's a subtle selfishness on Gideon's part. But this one decision, one small decision to think of himself too much, to move the national worship of God to his house, one small decision that led to a gradual slope, a gradual, unnoticeable turning away that eventually led his heart to abandon his love for the Lord. And his heart was led to another love. 
was led to himself. And in verse 29 through 30, we also see that, you know, earlier it seemed that Gideon was saying, I'm not going to be your king. No, God's your king. But actually in verse 29 through 30, we see Gideon acting as if he is the king, even when he's not the king. He doesn't have the title, but it says he has 70 sons with multiple sons. In the Old Testament, only the kings, or even in this time, only the kings, only rulers could have this sort of lifestyle. He even names his son Abimelech, which is Hebrew for my, God, my father is king. So think about this. He's saying, I'm not your king later in life. He's going to start acting like his king. Might as well just name my son my father is king because I'm his father is king, right? How, I mean, how much more obvious can it get? At the end of his life, we find him out of his mind with a pagan concubine, ignorant of God, leading a cult of pagan worship. One decision that led to a slight turning, minuscule steps to a gradual downfall until one day Gideon was a completely different person and he didn't finish well. When my old pastors um, in Charleston, he used to always he used to meet with some of us uh, younger men. He used to always tell us, men, this goes for the men in the audience, and it goes for everybody, really. He says, we are always one decision away from blowing it. Only one decision away from blowing it. Okay, now you might be saying to me, all right, hold up, hold up, Edward, hold up, hold up. We're the, we're the gospel people. You can't slide one by me on this. We're saved by grace. Right? We're saved by grace. Although Gideon had all of these mistakes in his life, and although the end of his life doesn't look well, he's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. You guys just went through the book of Hebrews. And it mentions in there Gideon. And it's talking of Gideon's saving faith. Right? Like, Edward, you can't slide one by me. Although Gideon messed up really badly, in the end, he was saved. Scripture tells us this. And in the end, the Lord always keeps his people. In the end, Gideon ended up okay. Now, this is, this is true. This is very, very true, and it's very, very good. You guys, you should look through the scriptures and find messed up people and say, man, God had grace on this person. God had grace on this person. He used this person, a broken person. He used this person. God is such a gracious God. And in the end, although Gideon did all this... The Lord worked in him, and Gideon was saved. That's a good thing. You should, you should love that message. But, because of Gideon's life and the choices, his made, choices he made, the same cannot be said for Gideon's loved ones. The same cannot be said for his family, and especially Abimelech. Look at point two. Because Gideon was led astray, Gideon's family did not finish well. How we live, how we live our lives affects others. And the way Gideon lived affected his loved ones. In verse 27, the text tells us that it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. 
And in verse 30 through 31, it says later in life, we've got this picture of Gideon who's not following the Lord. He's got 70 sons from many wives. Now, polygamy is one of these things that, yeah, it's, it's all throughout the Old Testament. You see polygamy all over the place. But it's never said in a good context. Polygamy is not one of those things that we're supposed to champion like, oh, yeah, man, he had many wives. Go you. No, it's many. It's like the text is kind of saying, hey, red flag. The dude had many wives. Next point. Here's what happens in his life. Not only this, he has a Shechemite concubine. In the first place, what, what is a concubine? A concubine was like it's a, it's a wife that, a, that a, a ruler or a wealthy person could have. But the person kind of had a lower status than the rest of the wives in some. And the fact that she's Shechemite basically means she's not a follower of the Lord. She doesn't know the Lord. So here's Gideon that's in this relationship. He's married to a woman who doesn't know the Lord, and she has this lower status in his life. So um, not only this, in verse 31 it says that she was, she was in Shechem. So Gideon has his family. This pagan concubine lives, lives in a different place than the rest of his family. She was treated differently. So um, not only is this immoral, not a good thing that we're supposed to look at, but it's just at the same time, you and I look at that and be like, well, that's kind of also just unjust. You know, I mean, even if the, you know, just unjust on, the, on that end. Now, in chapter 9, we read of that Imel, about how Abimelech lived his life. He, how he conspired with the leaders of Shechem to take up his father's fake throne. Gideon, remember, he's, he's not actually the king, yet he's acting like the king. And once Gideon died, Abimelech tried to take over this throne. And he killed 70 of his brothers in order to, to take the throne. He ruled over Israel for three years, oppressed them, was a violent man, thousands died, and even locked people in towers and set the towers on fire. You guys remember the scene from The Patriot? I'm just going to be running through all my favorite movies throughout this whole thing. So, Next we're going to Avatar. Actually, that's not really a lie. Dark Knight's going to be next. Sorry. Um, but you guys remember the scene in The Patriot where the leader of the British Army comes. He locks Heath Ledger's fiance, a wife at the time. I can't remember what it was. In a church, sets the building on fire. Abimelech's that guy. You don't want to like Abimelech. You hate the guy. You look at him and you just... God, throw an axe at him, you know? He throws axes in the movie, too. So if you're like, I haven't seen that movie, you're old, Edward. Gideon's waywardness affected his son. Although everything turned out okay for Gideon, it was not so for Abimelech because Gideon was led astray. Now you might be thinking, okay, Edward, this is a bit extreme. Are you really telling me that the way I live my life is going to affect my kids in such a way that they're going to turn into homicidal maniacs, that they're going to turn into these, have these crazy lifestyles, or that they're not going to know the Lord? Is that what I'm saying? Well, I'm not, not saying necessarily all of that, but I'll say I'm not necessarily not saying all of that. I'm not necessarily saying that, but I'm not necessarily not saying that. All I am saying is that Scripture teaches that there are consequences for our disbelief. 
And our consequences affect the way others believe or disbelieve. Gideon didn't finish well. It affected others. It devastated his family. But not only this, it didn't stop there. Because Gideon didn't finish well, God's people suffered the ramifications. In third place, because Gideon was led astray, God's people didn't finish well. God's people were led astray. Look at me in verse 25. After Gideon makes the request for jewelry to make this ephod, the Israelites answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. Now what's interesting about this is what it should remind us of. A lot of you guys remember the story of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments and receiving the law at Mount Sinai. In chapter 32 of the book of Exodus, it says that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. And so what Aaron did is he took all the jewelry from the Israelites that they had gotten from the Egyptians. And from all that jewelry, he made a golden calf and they worshipped it. This is like the number one, you look in scripture, if I were to say, apart from crucifying Jesus, apart from crucifying God, what's the number two offense that I could possibly think of of God in the scriptures? It would probably be, don't quote me on this, you might find something else and be like, no, this is definitely it, this might be number three. But it's up there. It would probably be Aaron making the golden calf at Mount Sinai. And worshiping it and telling people, this is your God. This is who led you out of Egypt. All those miracles you just saw, that's him. Now here's the thing. Here in the story, in Judges, the Israelites had the book of Exodus at that time. They knew they should have known their scriptures. As, as soon as Gideon started saying, give me, the, give me your earrings, you need a ruler, red flags should have been going off in their heads. But instead, the text says that they willingly bought into this idea. They were, they were like, that, that, Gideon, you're a ruler, you're wise. We come to you to know God's will. That's a great idea. And in verse 27, it also tells us that they hoard after the ephod. Now, archaeologists and scholars have discovered that many of the ancient Canaanite religions included ritualistic intercourse and cult prostitution as a part of their worship as a means of pleasing various deities. Now, in a lot of biblical context, in a lot of places in Scripture, generally, you'll have Scripture speak of idolatry as prostitution or whoring. Like when, when, when the Israelites just worship another god, it'll speak of it as, as prostitution and whoring. But in some specific cases, when the text references whoring, it actually, it's actually supposed to indicate that what Israel is engaged in is this Canaanite practice. And it's, it's the latter that many commentators think is what's going on in this text. And Gideon is leading this. In verse 33, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. This is after Gideon's death. Gideon was a judge. If you don't know what a judge is, a judge was supposed to be a deliverer, someone anointed by God, chosen by God, anointed with God's Spirit. The Israelites were oppressed. 
Gideon was a judge. And God raised him up for the sole purpose of delivering God's people from oppression. And from res- for restoring them back to God, to proper worship, communion with God. This is what Gideon's supposed to be doing. He's supposed to deliver and restore, and now he set God's people in the other direction. For the first time in the book of Judges, if you go through and read through the book of Judges, look at each of the Judges, look at Israel's situation before and Israel's situation after in each of those cycles. For the first time, Israel is in a worse place at the end of the Judges' life than they were at the beginning. Even though at the beginning they were in oppression, Now, that oppression is coming from Gideon's own family, and Gideon's the one who led them astray. So here's the thing. Here's the reason why learning from mistakes and telling yourself not to do something is not legalism. Because you and I act based on how we believe. Think about it. You and I act based on what we believe. And how you act shows to other people what you believe. You might say to me, I believe fast food will kill me. But if I see you eating a Baconator at Wendy's, I know you are lying. You might say that with your mouth, but I know you really don't believe that fast food will kill you. But if you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you, your cholesterol is off the charts. You're in danger of a heart attack. We need to schedule heart surgery. Well, then you believe something. You believe that a Baconator could kill you. Not only do you believe it, you're going to show it by the way you act, otherwise by the way you don't act. We act based on what we believe, and how you act shows how you believe. And when your actions show what you believe, your life preaches to people, and it preaches to those around you. So it's not, it's not anti-biblical to say, stop doing something. It's not wrong to say, it's not anti-gospel to say, don't do this, because it preaches what you believe. Look at your loved ones. What you do affects them. What you do preaches, it shows what you believe and what you love. The question is, what does your life preach? By the way you live, by the way you love people, by the way you care for people or don't care for people, by the way you look at women or don't look at women, by the way you care for the poor, by the way you treat your neighbor, all of these things preach to people what you believe. The question is, does it say, does your life, does the way you live, does it say to the world around you, I believe the gospel? And does it say to people, come believe the gospel with me? Or does it say that you believe and you love something else? Guard yourself for your sake and for the sake of those around you, that you and they may both finish well. So here's the lesson. In Hebrews 2, verse 1. You guys just finished a series on Hebrews, so just an awesome book. The writer says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. 
A lot of you guys recall playing in the ocean. You walk out in the ocean right in front of your hotel, get smashed by waves for 30 minutes in the same spot. You turn around to go, go back to shore and realize you're a half mile down the beach from where you started. Here's the thing. Gideon didn't just wake up one day and decide, I want to walk away from the Lord. And I want to drag my family in Israel along with me. He drifted. Here's the thing. You don't know what's going to happen in the future. You don't know what circumstances are going to come your way. What trials, if there are long pauses of monotony and comfort that lead you to dryness. Or a sudden tragedy that turns you bitter. Or slight consistent life frustrations that eat at your nerves. Over time, transferring, transforming you into a completely different person. And more importantly, you must guard what your heart falls in love with. The sin you excuse today, you have no idea how it will slowly transform your heart. Millimeter by millimeter, centimeter by centimeter, meter by meter, mile by mile, until one day... You're someone you never dreamed you'd be in a place you never dreamed you'd be in doing what you never dreamed you'd be doing and taking down with you those that you love the most, pushing them over the cliff. Gideon made a small decision in pride that turned into a snare that drug himself, his family and all Israel down. For this reason, we must guard ourselves. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. You don't know what the future brings, and all you can do for it is to prepare your heart today, to repent today. 1 Timothy 4.16 says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You just finished a series on Hebrews, a book written to a people who are they're, they're on the verge of not finishing well. They're, they're suffering, and they want to just throw in the towel and get rid of their, and, and give up on their faith. Now, you guys not, might not be there. You might not be saying, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to give up on this whole Christianity thing. Maybe some of you are. I'm not saying that's not a possibility. But... You may, be, you may be on the verge of giving in, that struggle, that temptation. You may be, be in danger of letting your guard down, forgetting the gospel, or not confessing and repenting. Sometimes you just get tired. Sometimes you want rest. Humbling yourself takes a lot of emotional energy, and sometimes you just want to give in. I have four words for you. You are never done. You are never done. In this life, you are never done fighting the fight of faith. You're never done repenting. You're never done believing the gospel. You're never done reading your Bible. Run through the finish line. So how do we finish well? Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 
It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is still called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In the first place, guard yourself today. You don't know what the future is going to bring. All you can do is walk with the Lord today. Repent today. Whatever you need to do to walk with Jesus, do it today. Do you need to read your scriptures more? Do it today. Go home say, today, I'm going to carve out ten minutes. I'm going to read my scriptures. Do you need to pray more? Do you need to talk to somebody? Do you need to talk with your pastors? Call Reggie and Ben today. Reggie's like, no, dude, I'm off on Sundays. No way, dude. Phone's off. No, go to Reggie today. If you've got something, go to your pastors. Do whatever you need to do to walk with Jesus today. It's interesting. The same way that we start the Christian life is the same way that we live the Christian life. How do we become a Christian? The answer, repent and believe the gospel. How do you live the Christian life every day? Repent and believe the gospel. Guard yourself today. Secondly, don't neglect community. The writer, is that verse still up? Yeah. The writer in this passage is telling his people to exhort one another every day. You know, one of the biggest blessings that the Lord has given you to walk with Jesus and to fight sin and to stay close to him is just other people in your life who are qualified to help you by the sheer fact that they are not you. They have a different set of eyes than you do. They have different opinions, and they can see you. They're watching you. They love you. It's a blessing. If you're not part of a missional community, join a missional community. Be a part of it. But don't just hang out in these missional communities. Make sure that your fellowship in these missional communities is Christ fellowship. Don't just hang out and eat and have fun with each other. Hang out with each other. Talk about Christ. Pray with one another. Meet one-on-one. Confess sin. Share struggles. Read scripture together. Talk to someone and say, hey, look, let's, this is kind of weird, but I think we're supposed to do this. You and me, let's get together a coffee shop and just read scripture together. I know it sounds weird, but that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to have fellowship over Christ, not just hanging out. Now, some of you guys might, might, might be here investigating Christianity. You might not be convinced of the whole Jesus thing and be like, dude, I, I kind of want to just come and hang out and eat food. By all means, come hang out. Just eat food. I want you to come to a missional community. Come to Michael's house. Eat his food. You have my permission to raid his pantry to eat all of his food. No questions asked. He is there to serve you. No strings attached. By all means, as you're, as you're investigating Jesus, eat Michael's food. So Gideon is remembered as a hero. He's remembered as the guy who delivered Israel with a mere 300 men. But we forget that he didn't finish well. He was a judge, and the judges were given a specific task as saviors, many as saviors of Israel, to deliver from oppression. They were anointed with God's Spirit to bring the people back to God, to deliver them from bondage. 
to restore them into communion with God and worship. But Gideon failed, and ultimately all the judges failed. But you and I have something better. You and I have the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I have our true and better judge in Christ. Where they failed, he succeeded. We were oppressed. He brought salvation. He brought deliverance. And not only was he anointed with God's spirit, but he anoints believers in him with God's spirit so that you may be able to finish well too. You're not out in this on your own. We have Jesus Christ. The judge who is the true king and who won't oppress you when you come to him, who will comfort, who has grace on your mistakes, and who softens your hearts and melts you to tears and repentance by his kindness. Jesus, our true and better judge, our true and better deliverer, who calls us to guard ourselves, who coaches us to run through the finish line, and who calls us to finish well. Believe this gospel with me and preach it to the world. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. You love your children. and You have been so gracious to give us hard stories to warn us and lead us to faithfulness in you. Help us believe the gospel today. Empower us by your spirit to guard ourselves today and to finish well. This we pray in your holy name and for your glory. Amen. So